How you doing? Good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm excited to be here with y'all. Robert Simmons uh, coming to you uh, live from the DMV uh, with Dr. Heather <laughs> Harrison. Getting used to uh, that. Getting used to that. Yes. Own your brilliance, sis. Uh, I'm ex so excited to have you here. Um, I want to welcome uh, everybody to the spot um, and Three Times Dope podcast. Uh, we have uh, a, a black conversation about being brilliant and being black folks with two dope educators, Andre Samuels in the house. Um, I'm just excited to have this organic uh, conversation uh, with uh, two dope leaders in education um, in DC and in America for that matter. So um, excited to have y'all here. Uh, we're going to talk about black brilliance. What does it mean to y'all as uh, award-winning school leaders? Y'all don't ever talk about y'all awards, but I do uh, with other people. Um, folks winning. Uh, Dre, Heather won uh, like family and community engagement twice They in D.C. I thought they renamed the award like the Heather Harrison. <laughs> Let me show y'all how to do this shit when y'all be playing games award, right? Um <laughs> Ray had I had like the highest percentage of black teachers in one building in DC. People ain't like when I talked about that, but that's another story. Uh, I won't tell people about that. But like I was always amazed at Brown when I walked in and it was all these brothers. I'm like, well, what's happening here? Um, so I'm just excited to have y'all here. Um, I really want to dig into what what uh, this idea of black brilliance means to y'all as school leaders. What does it look like? In schools that educate black children in particular. And then because of both of you being uh, members of Greek letter organizations that have a long history, uh, not just in education, but in uh, pushing for social change, I really want to unpack uh, based on your experience, how have black Greek letter organizations uh, impacted um, education specifically from both the leaders that y'all have seen? What have you learned from your experience of being members um, uh, in these organizations that have helped you uh, grow? And then I wanna kind of unpack uh, some of the work that y'all are doing right now uh, that y'all very rarely talk about, um, but I'm gonna put all, that, all of it on the street. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm happy to have y'all here. Um, and I just wanna have y'all introduce yourselves um, however you see fit. I uh, want to start uh, with my friend, my colleague, the homie, uh, uh, Heather Harrison. Doctor. 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 Yes, yes. So, so that What's would be me. Um, I'm Heather Harrison. I'm recently a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, where I received my doctorate in educational leadership and organizational change. I am super excited about that. I am from the DMV attended PG County Public Schools, um, did my first stint of te teaching a long time ago on the Hill, um, where we had both students from one side of the street and students from Potomac Gardens. Okay. Uh, so as a teacher, cutting my teeth in education and learning about what it meant to show up and be good for kids when I was very young and probably unprepared um, to do the work. Uh, love doing that. Also spent six amazing years as the principal at C.W. Harris Elementary School. Um, 
so proud of the work that we have done there. Uh, you mentioned the work around family engagement, but also around STEM development, around green schools, productivity, around um, helping young people take ownership of the things that they wanted to see different. And yeah. uh, so really, really excited about that. Um, yeah. I'm doing work in Baltimore City Schools where I'm helping to reimagine what culture and climate looks like for students, specifically coming back off of uh, this break, this break in traditional schooling that they've had. Mm. Um, our work is really looking at indicators for high quality culture and climate and trying to like disrupt this thought that you have to be in a beautiful brand new building in order to have high quality, loving relationships where all members of the community value it. Um, yeah. So for me, you know, I, I my school was in the not the best of neighborhoods, considering what you think about is supposed to be a good neighborhood. But what we had at our school was love and care and concern and honesty and compassion and a commitment to to do the work. And so to me, I'm just I'm really happy to be here. I'm excited to talk to you guys about brilliance and also kind of push my own thinking around um, what I think we need to be taking more control over. Um, yeah. We want to have the kind of outcomes that we know our families and students deserve. So thanks for having me today. Yeah, no doubt. We're happy to have you here to uh, bring that brilliance and uh, bring some Dr. Harrison. Um, <laughs> you know, I definitely, you know, as, as a uh, connoisseur of all the uh, relevant tattoo shops in the DMV, uh, we need to unpack where the best tat shops are to get ink in the DMV are for all of us interested in all things. Uh, you know, it's all upside down. I don't know how you show that, but anyway, uh, you know, I, I definitely want to get into that uh, as a part of the journey. Cause you know, I appreciate cats that roll in and they tat it up and then they, uh, you don't know it and they take off their coat or sisters, you know, take off their jacket and you're like, oh, okay, like, I feel you on that. Like, let's yeah. do that, right? This yeah. is, this is special cats who can get tatted like that. Um, so I, I appreciate that. So, Andre Samuels, what's up, brother? You good? I'm good, brother. How are you? How are you? Dr. Harrison, excuse me? <laughs> no, nah, go ahead, brother. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. Um, thank you for having me. Um, Andre Samuels, I um, am a graduate, three-time graduate of Howard University, the HU, mm, uh, mm. the Mecca. Uh, yeah, you can roll your eyes, that's fine. You, 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 she, you must have been to Hampton. The, I, the, I did, I did. Oh, I see, uh, uh, but we'll do that later. Battle of the Bands, it's okay. All I mean, right, no problem. Supposed no to be problem. having a game. Y'all can y'all can have the bands. We have we have the uh the doctors and the lawyers, and that's that's fine. Y'all can have all that. Wow. Cool. There you go. Um. So wow. yes, Andre Samuels, um, current student. Uh, the last student. I heard at Howard, I, I mean, faculty that I know were getting still getting schedules on paper. Is that true? We can move on. I'm just I'm just making an observation of what ha what ha happened. Why did you interrupt my my intro? <laughs> oh, sorry. My bad. My bad. I just. Yeah. I was Is it just, because I'm still in the program? Is that what's going just, on? No, I'm just I'm okay. just making an observation. That's all. I mean, no problem, no problem. I don't think they do that at Hampton. I think it's all digitized. It is right. accurate. That's you know the institute gets different funding. Um, <laughs> I got all night. I got all night. I got I got Alpha Chapter and and, and Howard Arrogance all in me. So let's wow. go. What, what, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? We didn't even wait. 
what what are we gonna do? Tell but, us about uh, your but, current program, Andre. Tell but, us about but, your but current. Seriously, uh, uh, current doctoral student at the University of Pennsylvania and the K twelve um, school leadership program. I actually stumbled into education um, my sophomore year at Howard University. I was doing some after school work in a place called Sojourners Neighborhood Center, and suddenly I find myself on a plane to Alice Haley's farm because I'm now a servant leader in freedom schools. So I'm learning about SNCC. I'm learning about all the things of being a servant leader. And I come back and I'm literally, my world completely changed. I saw, I saw a place of service now through working within the community, not trying to come in with a cape and find all the things wrong with the community, but knowing that I'm a guest and I'm of service to those that live in that community. Um, after that, I actually went back to being a paralegal. And then one day we had this huge luncheon and I said, I'm gonna go take some of this food over to Sojourners. Packed my car up, drove over and the place was closed. And what I soon learned it was closed due to the leadership team. And so about six months later, I re-enrolled at Cal University uh, got a degree in, uh, in training in school administration. And I remember leaving my last final, walking down the hall, seeing a flyer for a degree of math and special education. I literally turned into the curriculum instruction office and re-enrolled in school. Because I really thought if I can work with students that are considered furthest from achievement, then I can work with anyone. And so, in teaching students with IEPs, I remember, and I remember coming into DC and like, I didn't know what IEP was. I didn't know any of that stuff. I just knew I had these great minds in front of me. And it was my job to do whatever I could to help them tap into that inner genius. And That's what's up. I, I, I remember one, one student that sticks with me, just called me the other day, DeMarco Scott. And I just remember little DeMarco. And what can I do to be of service to DeMarco, not to save DeMarco, not to do anything, but to be of service to him. And so when I found that my students performed for me and did well for me, I said, what can I do to really make that genius innate? Why can they do well in this class or go next door and start acting up? Yeah. And so I really began to think about like, how can I touch more students? Well, how about school administration? How can I work with more educators to work with more students? How can I cast my net wider? So Dre, let me let me ask you a question for you and Heather as you all are thinking about your journey to school administration. Um, the two of you uh, embrace this idea of black brilliance, right? And you've talked about it in in different ways. When you if you had to sit down with new school leaders who are also black working in schools similar to uh, Brown and uh, the other schools that y'all have worked at, what what would you say to them? A, what is black brilliance in schools? Like, what does it actually look like, sound like, and feel like if you were to name that for other school leaders? And how do you coach others to recognize that black brilliance is a thing like what what do you do go ahead heather go ahead go ahead doctor so 
I think black, black brilliance looks like, um, it's hard to think about what it looks like. So when I close my eyes and I imagine like what I see is, I see creativity, I mm -hmm. see um, kindness, I see some, I see this ability to like engage and overcome things that you like aren't even supposed to be able to do. There's something to me about brilliance that is directly connected to audacity. It's almost like you got the audacity to like show up today. It's mm -hmm. like all the hell you went through last night. You got the audacity to like still be here and still try. There's something connected. It isn't just about like being bright or being like, you know, curious. It's like that and audacity to, to achieve, to still try. Um, for me, I think it just looks like for school leaders and folks who are working with children, I think it's important for them to understand that they have to be able to see what can be and not always what is. Mm. So the thing that disrupts that vision is when you see what it is, right? A lot of times you see the behavior or you see the data or you see the shirt that's got like grape juice on it, right? Or you see the broken pencil and you can't get out of what your idea of brilliance is because you're stuck on what you see. And so in addition to this audacity, there's this thought of like, I can see beyond that. I can see within that. Um, to know that you have all of the makings of all of the things that have sustained our people for hundreds of years. I think it also is, I would also remind folks to think about funds of knowledge, mm -hmm. and to think about the things that we take for granted that happen in our homes and in our communities, um, in our relationships with our family and friends on the block at the ice cream shop, right? At the candy lady store that we don't equate to like right. learning and negotiation and strategy and comprehension and problem yeah. solving. Yeah. So it, to me, that that is where black brilliance lives. And that's why we have to nurture it more. And we need more people who can see beyond what is there in order to get that and who model that audacity, who model being bold, right? Like yeah. you talk about people coming in and taking off their jacket. So I'm my whole sleeve is tatted. And people would say, oh, did you wear a jacket at school? No, I didn't. I have the audacity to show up and lead my community with a tattoo that says Thug Life, right? I have the audacity uh, to, to do these things and to continue to model it for people and for myself. And so that's why I think there's also this piece of like seeing and noticing that brilliance within ourselves yeah. um, that we can model for others and, yeah. and be encouraged by. That's a book. <laughs> That's a book. Okay. Harrison coming out in 2022. Title to be named later. Yeah, Simmons. I, you know, I see you have your tools. Add on to that. No, Did you see that, that? Your people Yo. chimed in. When 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 I when I hear Heather, yeah, and I and I think about the audacity, I think that every day we show up is a revolutionary act. When mm. when we and and then also tapping into and understanding that your own bias that every time we think about black, that we're not thinking about high need title one, because our brilliance lives in different pockets of education. I remember uh, two things. Uh, my line brother is actually um, an administrator 
Um, he used to be in Montgomery County. And we were uh, in D.C. one day, down, uh, Chinatown, downtown 7th Street. And we were walking around. And I said, I bet you I'm going to run to at least four of my students while we're down here. And probably hit five, six by the time we we walked down the street. And I remember him saying, because he, he at that time, he was in Montgomery County. And I'm in D.C. So, you know, demographics are very different. And what we landed on in our conversation was we're needed in both places. My students need to see me in a shirt and tie showing up every day and showing them exactly what a professional black male looks like, mm-hmm. modeling that for them. And your students that may not look like you and I need to see you in front of them painting that picture of what a professional black male looks like in the education system. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and um, another brother I used to work with uh, at Brown, um, Nasa Muhammad, he said to me one day when, um, when I was on this thing of like, I need a black male educator in every space because I'm tired of seeing us as black males in the dean position on a custodial staff even though we are needed in every place in that position, every place in that building, you are an educator, regardless of your title. He said, Samuels, when someone takes, when you take a group shot and you go and look at the picture, the first person you look for is yourself. And so if I can be in a space to put people that look like the students in those seats in front of them, yeah. And not just say, you know, you're so smart. You're going to grow up one day and you're going to be a lawyer. You're going to be a doctor. I can also say that you're going to be an educator. You're going to be a teacher because but, I'm just but Andre, what, is, what is possible. Andre, when you think about what you created at Brown with your vision for recruiting black male teachers, what what was the brilliance that you were looking for in those educators? Like, what did it look like when you did an interview, when you talked to them? You know what I re- so did I that's that, actually that year I started doing emotional intelligence interviews. Um, so mm-hmm. you can come oh because it's I'm, I'm hitting the skill and will, but I actually want to see your drive. What is it that has you showing up each day mm-hmm. and choosing to work in this school? And so there were a lot of brothers I turned down and mm-hmm. I but I will also say there were a lot of brothers that came in there that were not a fit for this population. So I, I definitely want to make sure we don't get it twisted by saying that everyone that looks like three of us on the screen are the best ones to be in front of our children. Because your skin folk ain't always your kin folk now. Because I've walked in the classrooms where I saw a black male taking off his shirt ready to fight a kid. And I walked in there with um, a white <laughs> female teacher and she gave one look, went like this and everybody rolled. And yeah. so just understand that because we show up this way, we need to make sure that we are willing to give of ourselves. Because I always push educators to say, if you are not looking at these children as your son, your daughter, your niece, your nephew, you are actually adding to their deficits. So if you don't see them in that way, you are adding to the problems that they may have in their communities. You are adding to the gaps that they may have. And then also looking for those black male educators I'm also looking at, don't think that I'm not going to, I'm always going to blame the kids for the, um, for the opportunity gap, because we're going to tap into your instructional gap also. So every educator that walked through that building, I treated them 
with differentiated support to make sure they're showing that they're full every single day to work with our students that they had in front of them 100 percent of the time mm -hmm. so so dr harrison when you were in dc as a school leader um I want I want you. I mean, one, I'll let you tell the story because I've, I've told it a couple of times, even when you're not around about family engagement and the two awards that you won and just the way that you showed up for your. It was two times, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm gonna make sure I got my facts right, because I told the story <laughs> like a couple of times, make sure I ain't told the wrong story. And um, when you think about your legacy and the work that you've done around uh, family engagement, and you think about hiring teachers, how do you know that teachers you're hiring and educators in your building um, have the notion that black brilliance intersects with black family engagement? Yeah, so I think, so first of all, I was always very transparent with my own story, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, growing up in a single parent household, you know, realizing that there were people at schools who just happened to uh, believe that I was a leader and who saw me as being smart. And I, I mean, I, I thought I was of average intelligence, but a lot of it just had to do, personally, I think it was with my height. So I'm pretty tall. Mm -hmm. So people assume she's tall, she speaks well, she must be a leader. And so people in school as a kid would begin to put these things on me, even though I didn't necessarily, uh, wasn't asking for them. And so I mm -hmm. think, to connect with teachers, I was always very clear about my own story, like being a product of public schools, understanding the importance of the library, having a mother who worked hard, but still made sure she showed up for the things I needed her to show up for that were connected to school. And so I think in that recruiting and conversation, we have to also as teachers and leaders kind of debunk this myth that like school was easy for all of us and all of us got A's and we just like know everything and didn't have to work hard for the things we have. So that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. I think the piece about family engagement to me was just really a response to the condition that I was going into. When I was appointed, it was my first time as a principal and I was the third principal in four years. And so, yes, I knew a lot around instruction. I knew a lot around curriculum. I knew a lot around literacy. All those things were great, but if they didn't trust me, it wouldn't matter what I was teaching. Mm -hmm. I would tell people, I loved teaching and was and think I was a pretty great, great teacher. But even if I put myself in a multiplying machine and put myself in front of every single student, if the parents didn't trust that we were going to be honest with them about their kids, that we couldn't keep the building safe, that we wouldn't make sure their basic needs were met, then none of that instruction stuff mattered. Um, specifically for our school community, yeah. so many of our parents also attended the school, right? So we, when they were young. And they came out of school unprepared, um, ill-equipped to move into the new industry in order to get into matriculate into successful careers. And so for them, there was this thought of like, yeah, I want my kid to go to school and have a great life, but I went to that school and you can see what I'm doing here. So we began mm -hmm. to think about like, what are the things that we can leverage with our families? What are the ways that we can build trust quickly? What are the ways we're going to be transparent and open with them about what we expect and how yeah. are we going to keep our word? Too many times mm -hmm. as educators, we yeah. don't keep our word for kids. We tell them we'll be right back and we don't. We tell the parent that you don't have to worry about it. And then and then you never see them again until the end of the school year. And so for me, you know, that first year or two really was just about me keeping my word to families. So let me, let me stop. Let me let me interrupt you real quick. Right. Ask a follow on question. 
because I, I see I'm tracking, you're naming this as a first year, second year principal. If you had three things for a first year principal, you won these awards, right? Family engagement, you Dr. Harrison, prestigious university, and you just dope, right? If you had a first year, second year principal in front of you, and we all know as someone who's in higher education as well, higher ed ain't teach none of us as teachers or even school leaders for that matter, let's be real about right. family engagement. You yep. ain't get no shine for that in most places. It wasn't viewed as valuable. What would be the three strategies, tangible things, if there are people on this call and listening and watching, what would you tell them are three things to demonstrate Black brilliance in family engagement as first, second year principals? Like yep. give them tangible things about what would you have them do? So the first thing they need to do is get into the community. And I don't mean like just at the church that's at the corner on Sunday, because, you know, it's a church at the corner, very black school community. I mean, like just get in the community, see where the people are, walk around, be with them, go in there as a learner, as an observer, as genuinely mm -hmm. curious about the things, the wonderful things mm -hmm. that are happening in these communities. They are. We have to give everybody black teachers, white teachers, everybody. We have to give them the opportunity to debunk what they think is happening in our schools. And I can tell them and they can read and they can watch videos, but the best way to do that is, so the first thing is to get in the community. We were fortunate to partner with Flamboyant and trained all of our teachers and our staff. Even my custodian went out on home visits. When we went on home visits, we weren't telling people, here's the uniform and here's what's gonna happen if you don't come to school and here's the syllabus. We asked them, what are your hopes and dreams for your child? <laughs> what did you love about fifth grade? If we could fast forward to June, what do you want to say your kid is able to do and know by the time the year is over? That was the first conversation. So you got to get out to the people and have a conversation. That's first. The second thing that I would encourage them to do is to be critical about what they are teaching children. And we don't talk about that enough. Mm. Um, and be critical about the lessons that they plan, about the ways they are engaging children, and, and really be thinking about, do you... Or do you think you're the smartest person in this room? And are you remembering all of the knowledge that these young people are coming in with? I never, I always saw myself as a facilitator. So they would need to see themselves as someone who is inspiring the question and not learning, not, not knowing everything. So I would say, be critical about what you're teaching, get out into the community. And the third thing I would say, and this one was important for me, so I, I learned early on that if I wanted to feel successful in my work, I was going to have to um, decide for myself what success looked like. Wow. I knew that we were at the point where we were, that there was no way we were going to be able to turn the ship like that, right? We couldn't just come in one year and have all the scores are great and all retention is great and all the discipline is wonderful. Like, so I knew that if I continued to hold myself to these other standards, I would feel terrible every day, think I wasn't doing a good job, be overworked yeah. and overburdened, not see my own brilliance and not even be able to support that brilliance in the people who I invited to come and serve alongside with me. And so I think the third thing any first and second year leader should do is yes, 
have your goals from your district, have your internal goals. You have to do, reduce it by this number, increase this amount, great. But set for yourself a goal for what you want to say you need to do to feel successful at the end of the year and use that thing as a reminder when things get difficult and challenging. And, and Heather, I wanna, I wanna capture what you said around this idea of getting out into the community and service. As we talk about um, your experience and Dre's experience in Black Greek letter organizations, right? And Dre always has random jokes about there's only one fraternity, but I'll let him <laughs> tell that joke himself uh, when, he, when, he, when, it, when, when, we, when we had his part of the conversation. But what, how, how have you learned about leadership, Dre, from uh, oh. your membership um, in your uh, fraternity? Day one, <laughs> day one. Um, and I, I remember graduating and- um, 2A97 is two, right. Two, no, 297A. Two, 297A. Two nine seven seven a. A. Yep, 297A. Please we, correct that. For yeah, so, no, I got you. But, <laughs> you know, from day one, when you are looking to be a part of um, any organization, whether it's a job or group letter organization, they are looking for leaders. What what value can you add to the organization? Because there's a level, uh, there's a standard mm -hmm. that we have when going into an organization and when entering. Because when you get that vote and when you come up off your knee after you've taken that oath, that's where the real work begins. You are not a representative of that organization. So when I walked across the yard, I wasn't just Andre. I was Andre the Omega, Andre the Q. And so you carry these skills into your professional life. And so when I think about, you know, when I went to freedom school training for the first time, I walk on Alice Haley's farm with uh, my Alpha Chapter shirt on and just a swarm of Omegas just come and they're all there for the same reason. And then once we start them, they're taking pictures, then the SG Rose come, the Deltas come, the Alphas come. And, you know, the one iota comes. Yep, I said it. And so we keep, and everyone keeps coming, but we're all there for service. We're all there for service. And when I think about the question you asked earlier- I got a visitor. Yeah, I think about the question you asked earlier about to Heather, like what are the things you would do or any advice you would give to first year principals going in? And I began to think about the advice I would give, not necessarily of the things to do, but the values to walk in with. And so when you, because every move can be different depending upon your mental model, depending upon what, you know, what school system you came from, the train you came from, um, or just your plight into school leadership. I would push all leaders to move with a sense of integrity, a sense of collaboration, and, and a sense of boldness. Hmm. Because the work that you have to do, if you do not move with that second one of, of, of collaborative thinking, you will miss the parent. You will not check that fund. You will miss not doing that fund and knowledge survey to pull in the information needed from the community to drive and to make those connections with your students. You will miss that first year yeah. really looking to yeah. do great work. You will miss that custodian that has been at that school for 15 plus years that knows every parent that knows the inner workings of the building. You will miss that front office staff member that is the first person they see because they're representative of the school, you will actually miss a security guard. Because yeah. my first year as a principal coming into um, Brown, I remember the 
the the early before us hired the new staff, we actually rode the bus mm. of a student. So we would catch it. We would we would get an address and we would take the bus to that address and back. So we're able to see what the student comes to school right. with, what's in their emotional right. backpack, because right. we expect our students to be 100 percent every day they walk in the building. But when you can see what they're traveling through in order to be 100 percent at the door, then you're a little more mindful. And I think that that one last thing is being an empathetic leader, walking yeah. into leadership, being very mindful of what do I need to give yeah. in order for my students to be at 100 percent each day. And Heather, for you, um, you and where did you go to undergrad, uh, Heather? Just to remind Andre. Yeah, so I I went to Hampton University, um, my home by the sea. But I was also as soon as I finished Hampton, I came back here to DC and went to Trinity and got both of my masters from there. I was in an intensive program, yeah. um, my masters to teach, and then went back in 05 to get my masters in supervision and leadership. Um, and and in all of those spaces, right? Trinity, Hampton, even at Penn. There's this thing to me about like tradition. <laughs> and when you go to schools and learn about the tradition of that organization, of that institution, you you realize, you know, cause you come out of school and you think you're smart, you juiced up, you know a lot, you know, you got a scholarship and you often forget that you are just one small blurb, one small little blip on the, history of traditions, years and years of people who have literally done things so that you could also do them, that literally forged the way yeah. to the past. And so when you think, when you put yourself in, when you take yourself out of the situation and think about where you stand, you you feel to me, I felt an enormous sense of, of obligation to give back. Like how, how dare I not mentor a kid? How dare I not donate to a particular fundraiser? How dare I not serve when Joyful Market would come to provide mm -hmm. meals and things like, how dare I not do that? And that service piece and that understanding that what you are doing is, is sure you're bright, you worked hard, great for you, here's a cookie. But that there are nameless folks that's right. I have no idea the struggles yeah. that they went through and to still be able to do that and to like name service, like the service before success, like community before the individual. To me, it just felt like something that yeah. seemed right. It just felt natural. It felt like and Heather, what, I serve. And from your sorority, what and I'll let you talk more about your your specific sorority. I won't be like Andre and have like something. I see you don't have something right behind you. <laughs> I got uh, yeah, she got a t-shirt on. She got a t-shirt on. You know, what did you learn from uh, being a member of your sorority that you've mm -hmm. carried with you into education? Mm. Mm. That's a good question. I'd probably say I not learned, but I was able to activate mm. my inner boldness. Mm -hmm. I, I could be bold and strong and curious publicly. And, and a lot of times, especially for women of color or for folks who are not always at the center of what happens, you get comfortable only taking up a little bit of space um, and and being a member of Sigma Gamma Rho helped me to like feel more comfortable taking up space, calling out the things that I didn't 
like um, knowing that even independently, I was never alone, that this sisterhood of people um, right, founded by teacher Soro McNair. Like, so wait, wait, let's go. Let, but Heather, go back to that for a second, because I didn't, I didn't know that. Can Can you tell us that story? It's It's a teachings. It was founded by teachers. Yes, founded by teachers, seven teachers in 1922 on the campus of Butler in Indiana. Um, I didn't know that. One of the only that is founded not at HBCU. So thinking about those seven black women and what they had to do at a predominantly white institution back in that time to pave a way both for themselves and for others. Um, to me, it just felt like, yeah, that that's me. Like there's a boldness in there. There's a, I mm. recognize that this is the way it has always been, but I can carve out a space to do it differently and do it better and do it alongside people. I think the beauty of sororities and fraternities and any network really, to me, and not to like plug my research, gets to this- Plug your research, sis. Step into your black brain, <laughs> Plug your research. Of belonging. It gets to feeling like you belong, that there are you are connected, whether virtually, physically, by letters, by an institution, by a neighborhood, by a set, by a color, that there is something very, um, very at the core level of people to just be connected, to feel like they are seen, to know that they are not alone. And when you think about the history of our people in this country, when so much of it was pitting one against the other or disrupting what we had, the ability to get back to that and say, no, we're not that, we're this and we're it together. That's right, that's right. That strength that comes up, it makes me think of that Martin um, clip, and I'm probably aging myself in like his first stand up when he made the comment about going Went to the he went to the movies or somewhere and he asked somebody a question. Oh, he was in the grocery store and asked somebody, "Hey, can you tell me what aisle the toothpaste is on?" And the person like gave him an attitude, and then he came back with everybody and was like, "Can you tell us where the toothpaste is?" There's something different that yeah, happens yeah, yeah. You show up yeah. with your with your letters, with your community, yeah. with your people, with you right. that that in, that creates the conditions for that brilliance to yeah. exist. And, and where did they film, Martin? I got to make sure we remind folks. I, they, they, the yes, film, that was the building. WPF, that was that. I said WPFW. That's the radio station here. The what building was the where Martin was fictitiously took place. Come on, Andre. Come on. Was in, in New York, Detroit, Michigan. It was Detroit. It was Detroit. Make sure y'all know. <laughs> got to remind folks from our Detroit people that are listening. Right. Yeah. I always got to bring it back yeah. to Detroit. I'm just saying. Yeah. That, oh. I, I'm mad at that. I'm not mad, but that, mad even that. that though, even that doc is you saying these. That's my people. I'm connected there. I belong yeah. to that. That's mine. That's us. Um, e even that, and and for young people, and for teachers, and for students, and for families yeah. who often have no. Um, no say so in how they belong. Who are often first told, "Get out." Yeah. You you got an abundant leave. You're not dressed. I want to right? ask you a quick question coming out of your dissertation research. And I want to go to Dre because I'm sure he has comments about his uh, fraternity and uh, leadership and service. I'm assuming I'm assuming you do. Right, sir. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Heather, when you think about coming out of your dissertation, uh, there was a great, great question that popped up around black brilliance and what would you recommend someone read so you did an amazing study um around uh a sense of belonging right and black girls right if i'm not mistaken yeah. right 
uh, middle school black girls, right? Yeah, looking at adolescent black girls and sense yeah. of belonging. Mm -hmm. And so as a former middle school teacher, God bless all middle school teachers. Like it's, it's, it's a special type of person that teaches in middle school. But anyway, and uh, to Dr. Van Bell's question, do you have a publication that you think would be powerful for folks to read that maybe centers black brilliance or sense of belonging um, just based on your uh, research, and then Dre, I'll ask for your you to respond in terms of reading as you've in, as you're entering uh, year two of your doc program at Penn as well. Mm -hmm. So I think one thing I would recommend for every teacher to read is Black Teachers on Teaching. Mm. Um, yeah. It's a it's a it's an easy read, and it comes awesome. from the way of just the narrative of folks who have had to teach. Um, before Brown versus Board, during Brown versus Board and after. I think that there are a ton of connections that can be made also to the ways that institutions say they are putting things in place to support learning, but are also oh, no. um, breaking it up at the same time. So I would say that. Um, I think I would also probably want everyone to read Dr. Monique Morris's work, Push Out. Mm. Um, I met her at um, a book reading and hearing not only from her and her text, but also listening to so many other black women and girls whose stories um, just reflected push out in ways that they did not feel like they belong. I think we can't think about how people should be and not, and do that in, in isolation from systems that aren't in service of them, right? So we gotta like be critical of these systems. So I would recommend Black Teachers on Teaching. I would recommend Push Out. Yeah. Um, I also think Bettina Love's book is good for folks who are new to understanding people's experiences outside of their own. Um, we want to mm -hmm. do more than just survive. We want to thrive. I think she does a really good job of talking about her story and what school was like for her. And I think too many of us, especially educators, um, forget what school was like for us and then go to design school for kids in a way that we don't think that does not connect with what we would say we wanted. In fact, sometimes we do more harm to children <laughs> repeating the same things that happened to us than we should. So those would be three things I would definitely read. And I would also ask people to, to do a journal. Like you need to think about what was your school experience? When did you fall in love with learning? What, are you, what is your school experience? And the more aware folks are of their own story and their own experiences, especially when it comes to K-12 schooling, I think the more um, open they will be to both see their own brilliance and to identify that brilliance in others. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Dre, what, what you got? Things you would recommend for folks to read? And then I want to come back to this question uh, around uh, your fraternity uh, and then I have uh, a few closing things that I just want to ask y'all briefly as well. Um, uh, so a book I would have, I would ask people to read is uh, for white folks who teach in the hood um, yeah. and the rest of y'all too. Um, so to make that connection to really focusing on instruction of students that may have a cultural background different from your own. Mm. Um, and then also just in all organizations, I would really push that leaders um, and, and academic teams um, read a book by Dr. Howard Stevenson, uh, promoting uh, racial literacy in schools. Because 
even if it's not, again, the, the, the space of the high need schools, there is the elephant in the room of how we do not talk about uh, race in schools. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the race, in the, the conversation about race in schools can be led by people, uh, by black people. And sometimes we are the only ones talking in the room. Mm. And so how do you, as a leader of color, um, as a black leader, start to have those conversations with our black mm. teachers and also with teachers that are not of the same ethnic, um, the racial identity of the students they're teaching? Because there is that space that still lives where I might be a black male, but I may not have the same experience of the students I have in front of me. So how do I still tap into their needs so that I can address my bias? Because all of us have a bias, period. And if we, one, recognize it, it's two, what do we need to do to make sure that that bias does not um, come to light? What, what protection are we putting around us to make sure that we're checking that bias? And when you ask the question about what my fraternity has has instilled in me. And which fraternity is that? Andre Samuels? The only fraternity. There is one fraternity. Heather, here he goes. And there are eight you know, I, can, I had to There's give him an one fraternity. And at one, I'll wait. I'll wait. Like, that's a, that's a good teacher. I'll wait. Okay. Now that I have your attention, there, there's one fraternity and eight sororities. Um, so, I'm just waiting for all the chats to come up with that. But what, messy boots. Yeah, I know, messy, messy. But one, messy. one thing I, I, I will say, going back to the point of, you know, when you come into the organization, you're bringing what value can you add? And mm-hmm. then that's where the work is and you're a representative of the organization. I would say that, because I pledged when I, when I was, I crossed when I was 19 years old. And so to come out of Howard University, the Mecca, and then coming out of Omega Psi, coming, coming out like branding Omega Psi Phi, one, two things that I was taught at a very young age that stick with me today is number one, to be a bridge builder, mm. to make sure that I am creating a space and leaving markers and leaving a bridge for those that came behind me, mm-hmm. uh, to lift as I climb, because anything that I am doing, again, I am making sure that I'm not leaving anyone behind. And I think when we live in this place of service, one of the best things we can do is not try to solve the problem for communities and for students, is to be um, a mm. partner with them in order to be change agents in their, in their schools and let that germinate into their homes and the communities. So those are two things I really walked out of Howard with and, and, and I walk with every single day with Omega Sci-Fi is that we don't rest on our laurels, number one. And number two, we are doing this because we are of service to our people in our community. I and, wanna, we will, and we will partner with other sororities to do so. Wow. He is in rare form. Rare form. Rare form. Um, Heather, I want to come to you with uh, one thing. Um, and then I have an ending piece that I want to uh, walk us through. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your board work and uh, more information about uh, Echo Eco Rise, right? Yes, Eco Rise. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, so Eco Rise is a nonprofit organization. They are out of Austin, Texas, and they provide um, 
small grants and curriculum resources and professional development around sustainable education, around environmental justice, around which we know is directly connected to social justice when we think about it. Um, and part of my work with EcoRise has been really exciting. It directly connects to um, this advocacy and this like sparking brilliance in, in students. Yeah. And so, you know, <laughs> my mom used to tell me when I was younger that association breeds assimilation. And you know, I'm little, I don't know what she's talking about. And so there's also this piece of like, my commitment to, to being disruptive of systems and things that were not right in my school community reflected the way that I led. And so it made my students wanna say, well, that's not right. I don't think that's good. Why is it this way? Like I remember they had a whole petition cause they wanted chocolate milk. And it's like, well, we should have chocolate milk. And why can't we have chocolate milk? So. My connection with EcoRise really came because so often we are overlooking any kind of content that is not math and literacy. We are overlooking mm -hmm. science. We are overlooking STEM. We are watering down social studies. We are not creating enough opportunities for project-based learning, for yeah. students to get outside, for students to experiment, to ask questions. And then when we do, we always have these reasons, oh, well, we don't have enough time in the curriculum. We don't have any materials. We don't have a lab. They won't know what to do if they don't have structure. Mm -hmm. And so my teachers and my students had all of these great ideas, things that they were curious about. They were curious about these particular birds that kept coming around the way. And they were like, well, why is this bird like this? And that looks like the one I saw near my house. And so we've tried to figure out a way to actually fund projects for students. Oh, so okay. we did it. We did an eco audit at the school, which allowed us to involve our green team students, our custodians. They did an audit walk. We looked at how uh -huh. much energy we used, how much water was wasted, how much food was wasted, and we developed a, a project and said, "Well, if and we this want was to funded by EcoRise." Yeah, uh huh. EcoRise came in and what's, did with what's, our teachers. What's their website? Um, for our Google search EcoRise, E-C-O-R-I-S-D. -E. <laughs> look it up yourself. Like, look it up yourself. Yeah, EcoRise. E what I look like. I'm a guest. What I look like. <laughs> but, but, um, a lot of the work around green schools has just been really phenomenal. Yeah. Um, they are researching projects. They are having projects funded. We're doing professional development for teachers. They also have taken a social justice stance. So they look at the ways that environmental injustice impacts social justice in communities, looking at outside green yeah. spaces, yeah. looking at food deserts, all the things that we recognize are um, challenges in, in communities that are situations, situated closest to poverty and try to think about ways to come to, to um, do that. So I would definitely recommend it. It was an easy, um, accessible way for us to connect with an organization that could help us do what we needed to do for kids without compromising the curriculum or having to wait another year until more science and STEM was funded. And yeah. I believe the last two, the last year, we had almost five thousand dollars worth of projects funded. Yeah, EcoRise.org. 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 You saw that? Yeah, great. You taught me how to fish. Ecorise.org. Yeah, so yeah. she taught me how to fish. So I went and Googled that, John. And but it's, uh, amazing. it's, it's right mean, there. Yeah, the commitment to um, supporting schools, yeah. and teachers down on the ground to take ownership, it's right? Solid. About student voice and student advocacy, but aren't really letting them talk about problems. We're letting them try to solve problems that we've identified instead of allowing them to identify problems that they want to solve. And, Doc, and Heather, can I ask you that? that? Doc, can I ask you that? Just I, I want to give kudos to Heather 
uh, because that's an example of tapping to the need of students and yeah. creating change on the ground. Because sometimes we cannot wait for policy to come down. We have to create the action and yeah. dictate how and influence the policy that's 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 above us. Yeah. And so that work, even though it's not monitored, even though I mean, elementary school science is a joke in some places. And to find that space where you have to then use your master to push around a cart and hopefully teach science somewhere, so the students have some idea what a what the the scientific method is, method is going in sixth grade. But what Heather did, she took an opportunity to use funding to or, or to make a connection because she saw the need of her school community. She saw yeah. a want of her school community, and yeah. then the work. It wasn't monitored, it wasn't assessed, it wasn't a report card, but it did feed the community and has a true sense of servant leadership. And, yeah, and Heather, how can, how can people find you on social media? Um, they can follow me at the Tatted Leader on Twitter. Um, okay, gosh, what am I? Okay. I'm the leader. But the other thing too, Dre, is it gets to your values and I appreciate you acknowledging that. I've done a ton of work um, speaking at green schools conferences because we still have this thought that like environmental justice and like caring about the environment is like a middle class white people problem. And to say, to show these black and brown kids planting right. seeds, doing their garden, like a lot of that that we think is not ours we're doing that too. We are recycling all the time. We are reducing and reusing all the time. We are thinking and growing our own things all the time. But if the if the poster for that is not representative of who we are, then it also creates this opportunity to say, well, that's not us. That's not for us. That's and so right. for me, we always wanted to just disrupt. You think that environmental justice is a white people's problem, but we have, we're living in a food desert? Like That is not the same. So what are ways that we can tap into that brilliance? Solve problems that we actually care about and, and, and practice these things that we know are the kind of skills that we want students to come out of school with. We want them to be critical. We want them to be problem solvers. We want them to work collaboratively. I've got young people in the fifth grade who have already written multiple grants. There are adults and organizations who have wow. never completed a grant, right? So it's just yeah, grateful, really grateful yeah. for EcoRise. Check them out, EcoRise.org. Yeah. EcoRise.org. Uh, Andre, how can people find you on social media? Uh, before I talk about myself, I do want to plug uh, Brother Charles Coleman, uh, if anyone watching today, please uh, visit blackbrilliance.net um, to pick up right. a Black Brilliance uh, sweatshirt, T-shirt. I have about four, of course, purple and gold. I got black on white. I got white on black. I got, I got black on gray. Uh, so please support. Uh, all funds go to- And you went to Howard, right? Of course. Um, uh, all funds go to uh, his mentoring um, initiative in New York. Um, okay. On social media, I on Twitter, I'm a Samuels two nine seven a, and please visit my website. I'm also an executive leadership coach um, at apogeeexecutivecoaching.com. Uh, That's what's up. Well, I want to close with um, uh, this uh, new segment I'm testing out, which uh, is called "Choose One Because You Can't Be Neutral." Right? Choose one because you can't be neutral. So you can't play in the middle. Okay. Right? You can't be like, oh. This is like nonpartisan. Nah, you gotta choose one. I know you about the. I know. So I know say. you have you have to choose one choice. You're doing a cross country drive, and you need to start your drive for the first hour, and you gotta choose between Biggie and Pac. Oh, Tupac. Biggie. 
Wow. And my son, the jump in the back, his name is Tupac Shakur. So I'm riding with Pac all day. Pac. Biggie. Sorry, Biggie. Pac. Biggie. Okay. So we got, we got a split. So for the second hour of your trip, you got to change the channel. And um, you need to decide between, we're going to go old school, De La Soul or De La. Tribe Called Quest. Tribe. A tribe. Yeah, a tribe. So I'm gonna go no. with tribe. I know I'm going with tribe. I'm going with tribe because I've been looking for three feet high and rising, and I understand <laughs> now why I can't find it. I heard the whole Tommy Boy situation, but uh, nah, I gotta go with uh, low end theory, no doubt. Okay. On repeat, and who on repeat, low end theory, oh, repeat. got it. I can uh, I can dig it. Um, and the last thing I want to do is uh, a tried and true. Uh, usual thing that we do on Three Times Dope is uh, make it make sense. We're going to do this one in two minutes, then we're going to uh, close out the show. Um, make it make sense with this whole Rachel Nichols situation and Maria Taylor. Like, Dr. Harrison, give us some brilliance in one minute. What are we seeing? What are we seeing? Yeah. Break it down so it's forever broke. In one minute. I don't I don't think I didn't read that and I wasn't surprised. I would mm -hmm. imagine that there are tons of people, specifically women of color, who are serving in these roles, who are on these sidelines, who don't get the credit, who don't get the support. And then the moment that they are elevated to something, someone is going to be critical of what it is. So it's the same like, well, oh, what they didn't deserve it, they shouldn't have it. And I don't, yeah, that's that's my take on it. And we also are not kind to one another. And so I really felt some kind of way yesterday. Was it, yes, it was Monday when Perkins and the other cat were like, oh, creating, Jefferson. Jefferson, we're creating space for Rachel Nichols. Rachel to say what she wanted to say and like not being there for their sister. But you know, this is this is how it is for for people with who have to deal with the intersectionality of race and gender at the same time. Come on now. Dre, I'm gonna give you a different one, make it make sense. I'm gonna give you a different one. You've been in the DMV a long time. What's up? Cicadas are gone. Yo. What are you, what are you doing to celebrate the departure of them damn cicadas, bro? Going outside, <laughs> going, going back outside, and then like I'm shadow boxing every time I sit down in the sun. Yeah. Um, I, I appreciate that because I, I I realized they were gone the other day when I went outside and was like, oh, I don't hear I don't, I don't hear nothing. Yeah, I don't hear nothing. Well, I want to thank y'all for joining. Um, I am always happy uh, to learn from your uh, brilliance. Uh, want to shout out for our uh, audience. Uh, Dr. Heather Harrison, uh, recent doctoral graduate from the University of Pennsylvania, right. proud alum from the Hampton Inst University. Y'all play all, all the time, all the time. <laughs> and uh, our other guest, Andre Samuels, um, and Andre is in his second year uh, doc program at UPenn. Um, he will proudly tell you that he is from the H-U, Howard University, every day, all day. So I want to thank everybody for joining us tonight. Um, special shout out to Ray Ankrum, uh, behind the scenes as a producer um, and podcast Diddy. Uh, shout out to podcast Diddy. 
uh, for uh, holding us down uh, tonight. Thank y'all for uh, joining us. Uh, we'll see y'all in August, where in August we are going to do an entirely uh, uh, Latino set, and we are going to have part of the podcast all in Spanish. That's uh, so looking forward to working uh, so you, with some of my you, colleagues. What you going to do during that time? Uh, <laughs> in August.